very, very good. Thank you, worship team. A massive welcome to um, you if you're here for the first time, if you're a family member or um, you're with us today. It's so awesome to have you here. Um, it's only 15 days until Christmas. A little bit scary, isn't it? Put up your hand if you've already done your Christmas shopping. All of it. Oh, there's the organised people. Put up your hand if you leave it until the last week every year. And uh, maybe one more. Put up your hand if you leave that to your better half and you only find out what gifts you're giving people when they open it. Oh, Mike Taylor. You're proud of that, aren't you? Um, well, we're in a series, uh, our Christmas series called The Gift, um, and as I say each week, I love preaching this time of year because it's a time of Advent where we build towards and we prepare our hearts each week to celebrate the arrival, the birth of our Lord and Saviour, um, Jesus Christ. Uh, and in this series, we're going to be studying or we're looking at some gifts that wise men or people from the East Magi came and brought Jesus uh, to worship him. And so our key text that we're looking at, if you're wanting to follow along, is Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. It says this, When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And uh, as I've been uh, studying this passage throughout this series, I've had um, kind of my mental image of this scene uh, really challenged. If you're anything like me, when you kind of picture this in your mind, you, you think of something like what we've got up on our window, our, our nativity scene, that uh, Jesus is in a manger, peacefully sleeping. Uh, there's three wise men holding gifts and their robes are flowing. Uh, there's some farm animals around, maybe a pig and a few sheeps. Um, there's shepherds looking on, sheeps, um, <laughs> sheep, uh, and uh, like there's a pitched roof, maybe an angel on top and a star, and that's kind of the image that I have in my mind. Um, but the challenge with that, as I sort of shared last week, is that it's very unlikely that there were three wise men, it's probable that there were many uh, wise men, um, and we also know, well, scholars believe that they would have been in a house because it would have taken them a very long time to walk to actually get to Jesus, and most scholars think that Jesus was about 18 months old, um, perhaps two years old by the time they got there. Um, and so for me, that kind of messes with my mental image, this thought of these wise men bowing down to a toddler. I don't know if my, uh, my perception's been scarred from having a toddler, um, but they must have been very reverent men. Uh, anyway, as we said last week, they brought three gifts. They brought frankincense, myrrh, and gold. Uh, and these were all practical gifts that helped the family, but as we learned last week, they were also deeply spiritual gifts in the sense that they symbolized or they prophetically spoke to what Jesus would embody in coming. So last week, if you weren't here, the first gift, gift we looked at was frankincense, and we talked about how that represented the priestliness of Jesus, or Jesus as our high priest. And we learned that the high priest was the person that would represent uh, the people before God. He would make sacrifices, and he would also make prayers of intercession. 
And we learned that it's such a blessing to have Jesus as our high priest because he's made the ultimate sacrifice for us. He gave himself that we might be cleansed from any sin, past, present, and future. And he's also the perfect person to make intercession for us because he knows our experience on earth. He's walked this earth. He lived in a body. So that was last week. Uh, Today, the second gift we're going to be looking at uh, is the gift of myrrh. Um, and before we get into that, I might just pause and, and say a prayer, if you just bow your, bow your heads with me. Lord, uh, we thank you for this time of year. We thank you it's a time to prepare our hearts, to fix our hope on you, to sing with joy, to reflect and remember. I pray this morning that your spirit would work in each of our hearts. And you'd speak, speak through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the second gift was myrrh. Um, myrrh is a valuable gum-like substance that is actually used 17 different times in the Bible. Occasionally, myrrh would have been used as an antiseptic. If you know the, the gospel, you'll know that when Jesus hung on the cross, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But he declined that because he wanted to bear the full weight of our sins. Uh, But most commonly, myrrh was used to embalm the dead. And so myrrh is intrinsically linked with Jesus' burial, which is why most scholars believe that the myrrh represents Jesus as the suffering servant, the one who was born to die for our sins and take away the sins of the world. Uh, And what are we going to be doing for the remainder of our time is we're going to be looking at a prophetic passage in Isaiah 53 that kind of speaks of the suffering servant coming to pay pay for the price of sins, um, and that's what we're going to be unpacking. Do we have any rugby fans in this room? Any rugby fans? Oh, put up your hands if you're a rugby fan. Yep, there's a a few in here. Um, What if I told you uh, next year I could predict the two finalists of the Super Rugby in advance. Would you be impressed? Not really. It's actually not a good example because all of the Aussie teams are horrible. The Crusaders win it every year. I'm going to go Chiefs-Blues. But what if I told you that next, next year I could predict the two finalists, the winner, and the exact score down to the margin? Would you be impressed? Be impressed? Now, what if I told you that 700 years from now, the world was still operating, which is probably quite unlikely. Rugby was still going. New Zealand was still here. There was still a super rugby competition. And in 700 years, I could predict the exact winner of the super rugby competition down to the margin. Would you be impressed? Well, Isaiah did something very similar. 700 years before Jesus was born, he prophesied this in the book of Isaiah. And he gives a very detailed account of what our suffering servant would go through. And in a moment, we're going to read through that and we're going to learn about that. But before we get there this morning, we're actually going to talk about the problem, the problem that Jesus came to solve. And I'll give you a hint, it's us. Um, Isaiah 53.6 says this, All of us like sheep have strayed away. Say like sheep. All of us like sheep have strayed away we have left, left God's path to follow our own. He's saying, all of you guys are like sheep. Um, and unfortunately, he's not meaning that as a compliment. Uh, in our New Testament age, it, it actually is usually seen as a compliment because we're just following the good shepherd and we're just following him. And it's sort of seen as a good thing. But uh, 
when Isaiah's using it, he's actually using it in a really negative context. He's sort of saying, you guys aren't the sharpest tools in the shed. Sheep were known for three things, being weak, being witless, and being wayward. Weak, witless, and wayward. Sheep are weak. They are defenseless. If a lion or a coyote um, comes and sees a sheep, they're pretty much guaranteed a meal. Sheep can't defend themselves. They have no fangs, no claws, no wings. They don't blend in. They're not camouflaged. They're not even strategic. So when a predator's coming, they don't say, you go that way, I'll go this way. They just group around and give the predator a big buffet. (laughs) Sheep are weak. Sheep are witless. They don't think for themselves. They simply follow the crowd. If one sheep does dumb sheep stuff, the rest of the sheep tend to do dumb sheep stuff. And to illustrate this, I I read of a story uh, that happened in Turkey in 2005 where 1,500 sheep walked off a cliff one after the other. You'd think after maybe 10 or 20 they'd get it, but 1,500, but the amazing thing was only 400 died because the first 400 kind of formed like a big sheep pillow (laughs) and they kind of bounced down, so 1,100 of them made it. Um, And finally, sheep are wayward. They wander from one place to the next. They, they have no sense of direction. So Isaiah wasn't saying, you're amazing. He's saying, you guys are weak. You think you're really strong. You think you've figured out life. You think you've got it all together. You think you can decide what's right or wrong, but you're actually weak. You tend to follow the crowd. You tend to follow culture, and you're wayward. You constantly are drifting from the good plans of the Lord to follow your old plans, and you're bringing about a trail of destruction everywhere you go. Hence the need for a saviour. Hence the need for someone to come and deal with both the power and the penalty of sin. This is what Isaiah prophesied of that servant. Isaiah 53. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That is your suffering servant, your Lord and Savior Jesus, that he would love you that much, that he would bear it, he would walk it, He would endure it because he wanted to have a relationship with you. He wanted you to have hope. You know, when we really grasp that, and um, Simone, you can come up if you'd like, it should do something in our hearts. It really should. When we grasp what our suffering servant went through and walked through, it should, something should well up. We should be like, wow, he loves me. Wow, his grace is just uncomprehendable. Wow, his mercy. Something should happen. It should cause us to overflow with thanksgiving. It should cause us to give every fiber of our being back to him. It should cause us to be in awe and worship. 
You know, I can't adequately explain what he went through, but I'm going to give it a go this morning because I want us to get the cost it was for him. Going to start with the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus wrestled with God when he got a glimpse of what he was about to go through. He asks his disciples, watch and pray, but they fall asleep. All alone, he cries out to God, knowing what is coming. If it is possible, would you remove this cup of suffering from me? He falls to the ground and blood literally drips from his brow. A documented medical condition when you're under extreme stress, anxiety and trauma. On the ground, he cries out to his father, my soul is overwhelmed. I am crushed with grief to the point of death. His human side comes to light. Lord, if it's possible, is there another way? But he humbly submits to God's plan. Not my will, Lord. Your will be done. Judas, a disciple of his, someone that he had walked with for three years and trusted his life to, betrays him with a kiss. He's arrested, falsely accused, unfairly tried, and sentenced to death by crucifixion. He would be stripped naked, publicly exposed, feeling humiliated and ashamed. A crown of thorns would be rammed into his head, one and a half to two inches long. And then the beating would start again and again and again. They would whip his back over and over again with a whip that had glass shards in it that would tear his flesh each and every time on each and every whip. They would whip him so many times that his back was unrecognizable. Wearing a signet ring, they would then beat him on the face. They'd take clubs and pound him on the head, driving those thorns deeper and deeper and deeper into his brow. Isaiah would imply that they would literally pluck out his beard, that he was so mangled and disfigured that he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Then weak, suffering and alone, they would give him his cross, crossbar weighing about 50 kgs and he would walk the path of suffering to be crucified 650 meters they would take the nails seven inches long drive them through his wrists drive them through his feet his back is so bloody that his internal organs are likely exposed and they're rubbing up against the back of a rugged cross The only way he could breathe was to pull himself up with those nails through his wrists, with those nails through his feet. He'd gasp for a breath. Wouldn't be long before his shoulders were dislocated, that his legs would give out, and slowly, 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 he would suffocate. Hanging under the heat of the day, shamefully, nakedly exposed, as the creation mocks the creator, the son of God. But that was only the beginning. The most painful part was when the innocent one who had never sinned bore the sins of the entire world. He became everything vile, everything filthy, 
everything demonic, everything unholy, all of our perversion throughout all of history was laid upon him and he became sin itself. And God in his righteousness and holiness who could not look upon sin momentarily, temporarily looks away. The intimate fellowship that Jesus always shared with his father was temporarily broken. And in probably the most agonizing moment of his life, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hangs up there, he's mocked and criticized by onlookers, by the very people that he's hanging up there for. And he says, Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They cast lots for his clothes. He is offered wine mixed with myrrh, the very thing they would use to embalm him at his death. But he doesn't take it. He doesn't want to numb the pain. He came to bear our sins, and he will finish what he came for. He then declares this in faith, it is finished. Into my hands I commit, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he breathes his last and gives his life for the forgiveness of our sins. That is your suffering servant. Take a moment. What love, what grace, what mercy, what compassion. What kindness. Have you appreciated the depths of what your Savior went through so that you could have eternal life? Have you appreciated it? Have you realized how much He loves you? Have you realized it? Have you realized how much He loves you? And have you responded to that love appropriately? Have you responded to Him back with all of your love? Or is he on the periphery of your life? You know, later in that prophetic passage from Isaiah, he says this, talking of Jesus. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. In other words, it was worth it. He will be joyful. He will rejoice. He's saying, you were worth it. You were worth the beating, the mocking, the abuse, the crucifixion, the pain, he will be satisfied because he sees you. He sees you whole. He sees you holy. He sees you with God. He sees you with hope. He sees you restored. He sees the creation being renewed. He came and he conquered. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. You know, your suffering servant, Jesus, loves you more than you know. He loves you more than you know. He loves you so much. He was pleased to do this. You being back with God meant everything to him. You know, as a church, we're going we're gonna to finish this morning by taking communion together. Communions where we remember. I just encourage you as you take that communion and you see those emblems, bear in mind what we've talked about today, that, that cracker, that's the body of Christ. 
that it was charred, that it was burnt, that it was broken, that it was beaten so that you could be whole. And receive it. Receive that wholeness. Receive what he did for you. That juice, that's his blood. It's the precious blood, the Lamb of God. And you are cleansed. You are righteous. You are holy. And ask yourself, have I responded to his love with my own love? You know, sometimes we can, we can forget. We can forget what it cost. We can forget the price. We can forget his worth. And it's good to have times when we're like, no. Lord, you have my whole heart. You gave it all for me. I'm laying everything down at that cross. You know, maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. He did that for you. He did that for you. He loves you and he's made a way. And you can commit to a life with him. Maybe you've slowly drifted away. It's time to remember your suffering servant. And if we all stand to our feet, I'm going to pray over us and invite us to take the emblems. Jesus, we thank you for coming 2,000 years ago. That you didn't shout your love from afar, but you came and you showed it. And we thank you that you, you loved us so much that you went through what you went through and you were satisfied. Lord, we love you. Lord, today we remember, we remember you as our suffering servant, the innocent one, dying innocent so the guilty one could be free, that all of our sins were laid upon your body. We remember that this morning. And Lord, we receive your finished work. We receive wholeness into our bodies. We receive your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace. Lord, and we offer our entire lives back to you. To the one that gave it all. Lord, would you, would you bless these emblems that we're going to partake in? Would you minister to us through them by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.